All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. Uh, welcome to our 10 a.m. service, uh, especially if it's your first time uh, visiting. If you're new to our church, really want to welcome you. Um, I know that uh, church and this city can be a little bit overwhelming, and so um, if you're looking to get plugged into a community, I uh, would love to answer any questions you have about Citizens. Usually uh, myself, some staff members, volunteers wearing the lanyards, we're hanging around uh, at the info table after service, so please come find us uh, there. I would love to get to know you and help you get plugged in. Uh, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Okay, we are launching a new sermon series today, so Acts, chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. This is the reading of God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom, of, kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we start. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, like I said, today we are launching a new sermon series in the book of Acts that's pretty much going to take us all the way to the end of the summer. And we're only going to cover half the book, so the first 12 chapters, but it's a long book, so it's still going to take us uh, five to six months. Um, but I'm very excited because it's been a long time since we've actually preached through a book, uh, the Bible, and this series is really going to close out our year-long focus on a spirit-filled life. Okay, and if you were with us uh, since last August, uh, we've been on this journey together as a church on what it means to cultivate a spirit-filled life. We started this uh, ministry calendar with a sermon series on the Holy Spirit where we talked about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, dispelling some common misconceptions we have and, and some of the baggage we have about the Spirit that we bring into the church. Then in the fall, we moved into a series on the fruit of the Spirit, 
What does a life in the Holy Spirit produce in us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. And then after that, we moved into a series that we just concluded last Sunday called The Liturgical Life, which was all about how do we make room, how do we organize and arrange our lives in such a way that the Holy Spirit can dwell in and through us. And all of that has brought us to where we are now. Um, you know, as you know, our last year uh, was our first full year back in person post-pandemic. So it was a year full of transition and growth for our community. And as a staff, we asked ourselves, like, what do we want for citizens as we open this next chapter of our church? And we said, more than anything, we want to be a community empowered by the Holy Spirit. In this time of so much uncertainty, division, hostility, chaos in our lives and in the world, what do we want more than anything? We want to be a church empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. And today we are launching a new sermon series, which is really the culmination of this entire year, called The Spirit-Filled Church. And we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking at what does a church now empowered and released by the Holy Spirit look like. And I'm getting very excited uh, even talking about it because I feel like we're launching this series at such a pivotal moment in the American church. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of you by now have heard about the Asbury revival that took place last month. Uh, Asbury University is a small Christian college in, in this small town of Wilmore, Kentucky. And on Wednesday, February 8th, uh, they were just having their routine weekly chapel service. It was just like any other Wednesday. Uh, they had praise. They had a sermon. And it's funny because uh, the guy who preached the sermon, right after he preached it, went and called his wife. And he said, I bombed that one so hard. That was so bad. Um, but then, uh, you know, it was nobody could explain what, could, what happened next because the service ended, but people didn't leave. They just kept singing, they just kept praying, um, and then the service just kept going and going and going, and next thing you know, classes were canceled, students started bringing their mattresses and their meals into the sanctuary, and what began as a one-hour chapel service on a Wednesday basically turned into a two-week, 24-7 prayer gathering. People started flocking to Asbury from all over the country, they said, I think, um, over 50,000 people um, flew into that small town. And obviously, as with anything these days, um, this moment sparked a lot of conversation on social media around whether or not what was happening there was a good thing, whether it was real. People were asking, like, what even is revival? Was this just hyper-emotionalism? You know, maybe the students just didn't want to go to class and they use this as an excuse. You know, and I mean, those were the thoughts that were going through my mind as well. And as someone who wasn't there myself, um, I don't really know the answers to these questions. But here's what I did pray during those two weeks as I was hearing uh, more about the, what was happening there, as I was reading different articles about it. I said, Lord, may my heart not be closed off to a movement of your spirit in our generation before I go straight to skepticism and cynicism and criticism, which I know that I'm so prone to doing, I said, give me a heart that is tender and soft, the heart of a child, a heart that waits with wonder and expectation for what you want to do, because what I'm seeing pastoring a church in LA is a generation, 
marked by exhaustion, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, people just moving through life without purpose and joy. And I said, we need a fresh awakening to the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We need it. And this is what the book of Acts is about. It gives us a picture of what happens when the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection takes a hold of ordinary people like you and me. Kingdoms topple, mountains move, lives are changed. The book of Acts is the second volume of a two-part work. Um, I don't think a lot of us know that, that it's actually a two-part work with Luke and Acts. So, you know, if you want to really kind of understand where we're coming from, you should definitely uh, read the Gospel of Luke in your spare time. It's not, it's an easy read. Um, many of you know, like, uh, one of my favorite shows, The Glory, uh, came out with part two on Netflix. You know, and I, I like realized when I started watching it that I forgot a lot about what happened. So I, you know, I needed to kind of like rehash my memory with part one. Okay, do that. Okay, if you do it for the glory, do it for the book of Acts. Okay, read, uh, read the gospel of Luke and then come to, come to Acts. And, and we know this is the second part because the first line we read, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And that implies that in this book, so that was the former book, and in this book, Luke is now going to talk about what happens after Jesus is taken up to heaven, what he will continue to do through the apostles he has chosen, through the church, right? So if the gospel of Luke is about the ministry of Jesus while he was on earth, then the book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus through his body, the church, after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Now, I know that whenever we read things and, and talk about things like, you know, Jesus going to the Father or um, ascending to the sky, disappearing into a cloud of smoke, whenever you talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, especially if you haven't grown up in the church or you're new to Christianity, I think it's very easy to think, like, who believes this stuff? Like, how is it that hundreds of people gather around, like, gather at a church every Sunday and really, like, do you really believe that a guy got up out of the grave and then just ascended into the sky? And yes, it sounds wild. And it's, you know, if you grew up in the church, this seems so normal to you. It's very, it's very strange, okay? Um, but before you write this stuff off, let me just say that the book of Acts was actually not written to uneducated, superstitious people who believed in conspiracy theories. The book of Acts was actually written for educated, cultural elite living in a large metropolitan city, not so different from Los Angeles. Okay, not only was Luke himself a doctor, so he was a very educated man, but Theophilus, to whom this book is written and the Gospel of Luke is written, was also most likely someone of extremely high social status. And we know this because in Luke 1, Luke addresses Theophilus as most excellent, okay? Which in that time was a uh, term that you used to describe high-ranking government officials. And let me actually just read Luke 1, 1 to 4 for you, okay? This is, this is from the Gospel of Luke. It says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke here, he's implying, look, I was a skeptic too. I needed to investigate everything from the beginning too. And now having done that, he's saying, I can't help but believe this really happened, so you need to hear me out because I want you to see this too. Okay, and so today, if you're sitting here and you find yourself wondering, is any of this really true? Did Jesus actually walk this earth? Did he perform these miracles? Was he really God in the flesh? Did he really give his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins? Did he really rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father? If you're skeptical, know that you're not alone and know that this book was written for you. You are the intended audience. And, and obviously, I'm not here to say you have to believe this stuff now, but if I can encourage you to at least ask yourself throughout this series just one question. What if this is true? What if it is true? Because let me say this, if it's not, this is the greatest farce in the history of the world. Like, why are we even sitting here? At the beginning of Acts, Christianity is a small, marginalized sect of scared, confused Jewish people whose leader has just been executed in the most humiliating way. And this marginalized sect somehow grows to become the most dominant religion in the world, one that is still changing lives in 2023. We have seen many fringe religious movements and cult leaders come and go. Just go on Netflix and you can see documentaries all about it, right? But we forget about those people in five to 10 years, 20 years, they're gone. They're a dime a dozen. But how is it that this tiny group that had no resources, no building, no institutional power, and a crucified leader somehow had the ability to endure through the centuries, captivating the hearts and lives of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation? Could it be that Jesus was in fact who he claimed to be? And if he was, it changes everything. It changes everything. And this is the question people are asking themselves in the beginning of Acts 1. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? And I love how honest the Bible is in Acts 1. It doesn't open with the apostles on fire for God and sure of themselves. In fact, it says in verse 3, After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why would Jesus have to give many convincing proofs that he was alive? Because they didn't believe it. Just like you and I often don't believe Jesus is alive no matter what he does. He clothes us and feeds us and protects us. He surrounds us with a loving community of friends and family. He heals us of our addiction and disease, and yet we're still like, ah, I still don't know. Maybe that's coincidence. Maybe that's just science. Maybe that's just my effort. And when I think about how we are, I realize nothing has changed. And from the beginning, Jesus has been building his church, not with the best of the best. He's been building his church who barely believe he's alive. As if to remind us that it's not about us. It's never been about us. The church doesn't need a mission. God's mission needs a church. And in this passage today, we're going to see three important aspects of God's mission. 
its purpose, its place, and its power. If you're taking notes, those are the three points. Its purpose, its place, and its power. First, the purpose. What is the purpose of God's mission? In verse 6, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, this question shows you how lost the apostles still are. Jesus has spent 40 days showing them he's alive, teaching them about the kingdom of God, and they still think Jesus is talking about restoring Israel as a political and military power. They still think Jesus is talking about overthrowing the Roman government and building a great Jewish nation. And I can't help but think about the parallels to American evangelicalism in recent years that seems to be all about maintaining political power and control, where America and Christianity have been conflated in some weird ways, where these days they sell you Bibles that like, are wrapped in the American flag. And I'm like, why do you do that? Well, this is a problem since the very beginning. Christians have been getting it wrong from the very beginning. And really what it came down to was the misconception that the kingdom of God was about them. Is about, it was about their dreams and their desires. It was about God doing something for them, existing for them, helping them accomplish their mission rather than the other way around. And isn't that what you and I do all the time? We have a plan for our lives, right? Get a degree, get a job, get married by a certain age, have kids by a certain age, send our kids to good schools, make a certain amount of money, buy a home, become successful, live the American dream. And then we bring that mission to God and we say, God, can you bless this mission? Can you help me get to where I want to go? This is the same question. Are you going to restore Israel? Same thing. Are you going to help me do what I want to do when I want to do it? And even if you haven't prayed this explicitly, I want you to ask yourselves, what do you feel when your life doesn't go according to the script? What do we do all the time? We begin to resent God. We begin to believe that he doesn't have our best interests in mind. We begin to believe the lie that he isn't for our good. But the question is, does God exist for us or do we exist for God? And so when the apostles ask Jesus, are you going to restore Israel? Jesus responds by saying, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. He's saying, there's going to be a lot you don't know about your life. I'm not going to tell you exactly who you're going to marry, what career path to choose, where you're going to live, but here's what you will know about your life. You will be my witnesses. A lot of young people these days are wrought with anxiety. There's so many studies about it, about it because people these days have decision fatigue. There are so many choices, right? It used to be you only had like five people you could possibly ma marry because there were only five people living close to your farm, right? Now, like every day, there's like, could it be this one? There are so many choices, and people are so anxious Career decision anxiety, right? Everyone has like five jobs, 
I, I mean, because they can't decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And it's like people are always asking me, Jason, can you just pray that God tells me? I, I will do it if he just told me what to do. Can he give me the specifics? And this is God saying, it's not for you to know the times and the dates, but you will be my witnesses. In every season, in every circumstance, in every community you're a part of, there's going to be a lot you don't know, but here's the one thing you will know. You're going to be my witnesses. What does that mean? What is a witness? In a court of law, a witness is a person that doesn't tell you what's going to happen. A witness is someone who testifies to what he or she has already seen and experienced. That is what a witness is. Witnesses tell you about something that has already happened. And so when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, he's saying your life is not going to be about striving to be someone or striving to accomplish something. Your life is going to be about bearing witness to what has already been accomplished. That when people look at you, they're not going to see someone grasping for power and popularity and influence and status and success. They're going to see someone overflowing with joy and confidence because of who they are in me. Deeply loved and cared for. You will be my witnesses. This is the purpose of God's mission. Number two, where is that mission carried out? The place, the place of mission. Jesus is very specific. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's almost like there's an intentional order in which he's calling these apostles to their mission. First in Jerusalem, in their immediate home region, then the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria, full of non-Jewish people, and then to the ends of the earth. It's like concentric circles that move from the inside out. And, and as a side note, you and I are the fruit of this mission being carried out. I think a lot of times, like, we like to think, we like to place ourselves at the center of the biblical story. Last time I checked, I don't know if there are anyone, I don't know if there's anyone in this room that is an ethnic Jew. We are the ends of the earth. We are the Gentiles. We are the beneficiaries of this mission being carried out according to plan. If you are an ethnic Jew in here, I'm so sorry, okay? <laughs> maybe, maybe there is, okay? Sorry, okay? And this is about you, okay? And thank you for letting us in to the story, okay? Um, but I think this gives us a really helpful paradigm to think about our own lives and our own mission. I think a lot of us, we grew up in homes where we, there was a dissonance, right? Because we saw our parents going to morning prayer every morning. We saw them going on these like month-long mission trips, being on fire for God, and they would come back and they were the worst parents. You know, they were horrible. You know, we were like, what? Something is not right here. Before we go to the ends of the earth, are we witnesses in Jerusalem than in Judea and Samaria? Who are the people you are doing life with every day? Who are those who have been entrusted to your care? Your siblings, your closest friends, your children, your parents, your spouse. How are you treating them? How are you embodying the love of Christ to them? I think sometimes it's so ironic that we treat those who are closest to us the worst. You know, this past week, I like had a failure moment as a father 
because in the morning, you know, my wife was on a business trip, so I had the kids, and, you know, it was like glitter sparkle day at their school, so it was like really stressful, I was trying to get their clothes on, and like my daughter, seven-year-old daughter would not put on her jacket for the life of her, and I told her to go upstairs to get, you know, get something. She wore this, came back in this like thin sheer thing, and I was like, you have like six million jackets, just go put on a jacket. She wouldn't do it. I go upstairs, she's like, I don't have any jackets. I go upstairs, I bring down like a bundle of jackets and she's like, those don't look good. And I'm starting to get really upset and I'm getting really frustrated. And, I, and then I don't know what got into me. I was like, you know what? I want you to freeze today. I want you to go outside, you know, don't wear anything. You know, don't wear anything. You know what? Don't even eat dinner today. You know, don't like, you know, cause you need to know what it's like to be cold. And you need to know what it's like to not have food. And, and like, you know, I'm in the car and it's dead silent. And I'm like, okay, what am I doing here? Why, why, what game am I playing? You know, and, and I look in the rear view mirror and she's like crying quiet tears in the car. But, you know, I'm in too deep at this point. You know, like, as a parent, you have to be consistent. So I'm like, all right, let's just see where this goes. You know? And the thought that came to my mind was like, you would never do this to any of your congregation members. You, like, you would never do this to any of your coworkers. And yet the things we will do to our children, the ways that we often fail to embody the love of Christ and be witnesses to Christ's love in our own homes. So first, we got to get our own homes in order then after your immediate family and friends, then you have to start asking yourself, how am I bearing witness to Jesus in my city, in my workplace, on my college campus, around people who are different from me, who come from different backgrounds and have different political and social affiliations? Am I embodying Christ's love to them? And then from there to the ends of the earth. What happens to your heart when you hear about things happening in Ukraine? What happens to your heart right now when you think about the thousands and thousands of people who've lost their loved ones and who've been displaced by the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey? How do we treat people on Twitter? You know, the ends of the earth used to be only something you said in the context of overseas mission. But now, at this very moment, in your pocket, you have access to the ends of the earth. Every time you sign online and every time you go on social media and every time you're on Twitter, you are interacting with the ends of the earth. And the big question is, how are we embodying the love of Christ to everyone out there? If you've ever spent even 15 minutes on Christian Twitter, it is the most toxic space you will ever experience. These are people who say they are followers of Jesus and yet the way they disparage and ridicule people who have different theological and political convictions is sad. And I believe when Jesus looks at Twitter, he weeps. I really do. So the purpose of God's mission is to be Jesus' witnesses. The place of mission is first in our homes, then in our city, and then to the ends of the earth. Which brings me to the final point, the power of mission. Where do we get the power to now pursue God's mission. Because as straightforward and as simple as this mission is, it's very hard. Especially in this world that is all about us. It's all about getting my needs met, getting my preferences met, my comfort, my success. 
add to that the fact that it is very hard to love and serve others. You know, our, our church just wrapped up an eight-week course on emotionally healthy relationships. We had uh, about 70 to 80 people take the course. And if there's anything that I could say that came out of this course, it's the realization that it's so hard to love people well. It takes so much processing and so much unpacking our own families of origin, the ways we haven't been loved well. So then to go out and to have to embody Christ's love to others, that is hard work. So where are we going to find the power? And Jesus tells us, in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When the Holy Spirit comes on you. We cannot become the people God has called us to be without the Holy Spirit. We cannot become the church God has called us to be without the Holy Spirit. Last, uh, this past week, our staff started talking about Easter. And it's a stressful time if you work for a church. And we're trying to think about how we're going to accommodate parking uh, because the church, for some reason, doubles on Easter. Because I don't know, I think people think like the blessings are more on Easter Sunday. I don't know what that is. Uh, we're like, where are we going to put our overflow space? Should we have one service? How are we going to accommodate all these people? You know, do we do lunch afterwards? A lot of, lot of logistical things. And in the midst of the conversation, one of our staff members, Julie, uh, who we call the mother of dragons on our staff, um, in the midst of all the logistics, she stops us and she's like, hey, can we just stop and pray about this? And I felt very ashamed that it wasn't my suggestion. It was hers, okay? Um, but it made me think, like, how often do we actually invite the Holy Spirit into the decisions we make for our families, for our, our, our friends and our relationships, for our church? How often do we throw ourselves on his power and trust and trust him to guide us in times of uncertainty and confusion because we need his power if we're going to survive in this world, let alone be his witnesses. And what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? We talked about this last August. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to point us every day to Jesus, to his incomprehensible love for us demonstrated on the cross to his gentle heart that is always patient and kind, to his goodness that pursues us all the days of our lives. And the more we live in that reality, the more our decisions will become clearer. The more our homes will be filled with peace and joy, the more our relationships will be marked by forgiveness and reconciliation. And one home at a time, one community at a time, this is how the world is transformed. You know, I think the ascension of Jesus doesn't get enough love. It's kind of like in Acts 1, it's, it's spoken about and then we move on. You know, and we talk a lot about the resurrection. Again, Easter Sunday is going to be this huge celebration about the resurrection of Jesus. But there is actually so much theological richness that comes with Jesus' ascension. Right at the end of our text today, the apostles are looking intently. It says they're looking intently at the sky as Jesus just disappears. And you can almost feel their anxiety, right? Because they're contemplating what is it going to be like to live without Jesus' visible and physical presence. It's a traumatizing moment. They're probably thinking, wait, you can't go yet. There's so much more you have to teach us. There's so much more you have to show us. There's so much more we haven't asked you. We need more time. 
But if you remember back in John 16, Jesus gives his followers an astounding promise. He says, it's actually to your advantage that I go away because that means the Holy Spirit is coming. And he says, the only thing better than me beside you is me inside you. It's a powerful promise. And it's this beautiful promise, and it's, it's Jesus saying, I'm not actually leaving you. I'm now going to live in and through you. You're going to have access to my power every moment of your life. You know, today is March 12th, and it's six years to the day that my beloved mother-in-law went to be with the Lord after a hard-fought battle with cancer. And it's always a hard day for our family because we feel like she left too soon. It felt like she had so much more to teach us, so much more to show us, so much more love to give. But every year, it, it doesn't necessarily get any easier, but you realize that she's not really gone that her life and her legacy did not end when she passed, that she continues to live on through her daughters. And I'll see, sometimes I'll see Carol say or do something to the kids, and I'll say to them, you know, Haimani used to do exactly that. Or Carol and I will be talking, and I'll just stop and be, be like, oh my gosh, that just reminded me so much of your mom. Half the time, that's a fight after that, when I say that. <laughs> but the other half the time, it's an opportunity for us to remember the woman she was. The promise of the ascension of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't just live through us. He now lives in us. He may not be here in bodily form, but all of us now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can bear witness to who he was, his character, his love, his patience, his joy, his humility, first in our homes, then in our city, and then to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. just want to give us uh, a moment or two to reflect on anything you've heard today and ask yourself, how are you embodying the love of Christ? First in your homes, even just to your immediate family and friends in your community. How are you bearing witness to what Jesus has done? How are you bearing witness to his forgiveness? his kindness, his patience. And I want to give us a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. May the Holy Spirit's power be realized in and through us.
Lord, we believe you are here. We believe your presence is in this room and in, in the heart of every believer sitting here. And we get excited thinking about what our homes and our city and the world could look like if even every believer in this room understood the power that resides within them through your Holy Spirit. If we all would leave this place and become living sacrifices, living embodiments of your love, testimonies that bear witness to who you are and what you've done for us. God, help us to be a church that does not seek our own will, that does not seek our own way, but help us to be a church attuned with your spirit saying, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in LA as it is in heaven, in my home as it is in heaven. We thank you for this word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.